welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. Joe. Yes. Did you know? <laughs> did you know that the VIX futures could... This is super dramatic. <laughs> it's not that interesting. Um, did you know that the VIX futures curve has been inverted or kind of inverted for, I, I think, like six months now, basically since February? I didn't realize it was then, but or I didn't realize it had been six months. So basically, that means that investors are hedging against higher volatility out in the future than they are right now or the other way around? The other way around. So it means people are paying more for volatility protection in the near term than they are in the future. But that's unusual, or at least it, it, it's um, counter to how the VIX curve normally looks. Normally, the VIX curve is upward sloping because there's more uncertainty further out into the future. And so you pay more for that volatility insurance. So it's kind of unusual to have the VIX curve downward sloping for this long. And I, I guess it's yeah. one of those things that that tells you that we're in, in an interesting place when it comes to markets at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense uh, that people are paying up more for short term uh, hedging right now because we obviously are just in extraordinary times. You know, you look out a little ways, one year, two years, you could sort of envision a return to normal. But it feels like we're in a period where anything could happen tomorrow, whether it's policy, whether it's related to the virus, et cetera. And so, uh, yes, uh, it's sort of intuitive that people want uh, hedges in the here and now. Yeah. And of course, the big event risk on. But can I say can I say something, though? (laughs) Go on. No, this is something that's always bothered me. And maybe we'll we'll get into this with our guest today. But. I don't understand why it's not always like that, because I understand (laughs) that most of the time people want to pay out for some protection because the future seems like less certain than the present. So I get that in theory. But on the other hand, one of the central like sort of like dogmas of finance is that, you know, over the long term, things to things go up, the economy improves, stocks go up, et cetera. So it always seems to me like it should actually be the other way around, where it's like in the short term, anything can happen. But in the long term, things are smooth. So I've never really understood the premise of why VIX futures curves slope upward in the first place. But anyway, we can we can get into that later. Yeah, I mean, there are dozens and dozens of exchange traded products whose very existence is predicated on the VIX curve uh, sloping yeah. upwards in normal times. Um but yes, we should we should ask the question, I guess. All right. Well, uh, you've already sort of given it away. But uh, in this episode, we're going to be talking about the current volatility regime. And I was about to mention that there is a very big event risk coming up on the horizon, which is the U.S. elections. And we've seen a lot of talk right. about volatility hedging ahead of that. We're going to get into that. And we're also going to talk about some of the, the, the longer term changes in volatility market structure, including maybe even why the VIX futures curve uh, is normally upward sloping. Now, I'm super excited about this one. I mean, it's obviously been an extraordinary year. I think uh, due to the rise of these sort of discrete events, whether it's the uh, the virus itself, the big thing that's coming up on November 3rd of this year, which uh, could be uh, producing an extraordinary amount of uncertainty, there's been so much interest um, in uh, what volatility futures or VIX futures curves on all sorts of asset classes are sort of anticipating on how wild things could get. We also, as we spoke about um, 
with Ben Eifert a few weeks ago. There's the emergence of this whole class of sort of retail derivatives buyers, call options buyers, also sort of breaking historical patterns potentially in terms of how uh, hedging markets look. So this is an extraordinary uh, rich topic to dive into. And although we've hit it in some ways in the past, it doesn't feel like we can ever really talk about it enough. Yeah. Uh, I totally agree. So our guest for this particular episode is Chris Sidule. He's the co-CIO over at Ambrus Group, uh, basically a volatility arbitrage trader. And he's been in that particular space for, uh, well, many years now. So the perfect person to talk to us about the current volatility trading regime. Chris, welcome to Odd Lots. Hey, good morning. Thank you for having me. So I, I guess to begin with, you know, Joe asked that question about why the VIX curve is normally upward sloping. Can you maybe explain to us uh, what you've seen over the past few months in terms of how the market is pricing volatility and what's changed? Why is the VIX curve downward sloping? What are you seeing in terms of hedging demand and things like that? Right. So uh, it's very easy to tell that everybody is fixated on the December vault, right? And it's for good reason too, right? You have the potential resurgence of the coronavirus, you have uh, the election time volatility, you have the potential for corporate earnings lagging. Banks are reporting this week. So that's pretty big, especially because of you know everything that's been taking place in, in, in trading on the banking side. So everybody has been fixated on December vault. And there has been a constant bid, um, even back in uh, late August, we've seen that correlation break between uh, VIX and SPOT. And, you know, people were watching that. That was a little bit supply and demand driven. We, we understand that there was a big player in the market that helped propel that um, due to some of the dealer gamma hedging, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I could go on for, for hours about that one. I think people have a concern about the upcoming catalyst and we're seeing across the uh, the scope pre-hedging that's taking place, you know, not only with some of the larger players, but you're seeing it with the smaller guys too, with some of the, you know, registered advisors, you know, they're basically instructing their clients to, you know, go out, make sure you really protect yourself. So it's been a constant bid and falls at that level. You know, I, I've been tweeting this is that when the term structure is so elevated, like what we see when vol is so bid up, it's very difficult to get that added convexity in the move. And what I mean is that when vol is so pre-bid, it's somewhat priced in, right? So people are kind of anticipating this. People are pre-hedged. The move that you need to get VIX to like a 70 or 80, it has to be real panic and real fair in the market. And you won't get that if guys are pre-hedged, right? Because th- let's think about it in the most basic conceptual way. If you have a book, right? Let's just say you're running a million dollar book, right? And you have your hedges on and the market is down 7%, 10%, right? You're pre-hedged. So you're not going to go and rush to the exit door, right? To sell off your positions because you already have your hedge. And when you have that across the entire landscape, Right, it becomes much more difficult to get vol to to really get going. It's like that example of like you know, what causes the VIX to really spike is if you have a whole bunch of people in the room and they're all trying to get to the exit door at the same time. But in this case, right? No, so I mean, just just sort of like to, I mean, if you just sort of 
think about over the last several months, March was sort of like the mother of all panics, probably one of the biggest panics in the history of Wall Street. And since then, it's just been nothing but fear of a second wave, fear of ongoing economic sort of fallout, fear of a policy mistake, fear of the election, everything going wrong, massive reason to hedge and stay out of the market. But as such, it's hard to get actual intense selling when essentially so many people were already have already been fearful. Right, right. So it's uh, it's that pre-hedged position that will disable vault from going through the roof, right? It needs to be uh, somewhat of a fear factor. And I was saying this too, that in order for vault to really get going in December, you need a fresh catalyst, right? So the the election time just isn't enough to really get vault to go through the roof how people are anticipating. And you are seeing that in the divergence between VVIX and VIX, right? VIX is volatile. And what we're seeing is the market is not really fearful. You're seeing a divergence between the two. And it's showing us that, yeah, guys are, are pre-hedged, but there isn't a massive rush to pre-hedge. Don't get me wrong, right? There is a potential for a fresh catalyst, right? Like, granted a, a Biden election, right? Now, you have to think, you have to immediately shift your focus into the trade war. Right. If, if a Biden election takes place, because right. what if we wake up the next day? Right. We find out Joe Biden is the president. And one week later, we hear China's like, OK, guys, well, sorry, you know, uh, we need to reassess these, uh, the, this trade deal that we were talking about. Right. So a fresh new catalyst like that or, you know, something just completely out the woodwork could be enough to get the market to get going. But it's very difficult to get volatility to really the roof like a VIX. Um, a VIX move to 70 or 80 on things that are already pre-priced. I just don't think that the velocity of the move will be there uh, without a new catalyst that isn't already predetermined. Hmm. So one of the questions I have based on that is if everyone is pretty well hedged going into the presidential elections, who is actually selling vault exposure uh, at the moment? So that's a really good question. Um, there are people that are out there that are taking advantage of this and, and you know, they're looking to sell ball. We actually know a, a couple institutional guys who are trying to take advantage of this. But, you know, they, I think they are expressing their views in a more sophisticated way where they are um, hedged off. But I would not suggest this to the average retail guy because there are a lot of complexities that go into this. With the recent correlation break in spot and VIX, it's very difficult to determine what the market is going to do. You can't have too much conviction on that side because you could have a situation where spot is down and ball is down, all right? Or you, you could have a, an inverse of that situation, right? So you can't be too sure of what exactly is going to take place. Historically and statistically, right now, I'm very confident enough to say that the trade is short volatility, right? Statistically and historically. There are no numbers that I think an individual could pull up that can lead me to say that the trade is not short ball. However, as a trader and you know, as a risk manager, you look at this from a different standpoint, right? Because you look at this and you say, 
okay, the data makes sense, the numbers line up, but there's been so much variability in 2020. Do we really want to take this shot, right? So there are a million other trades out there that we could take. We're not expressing the the view uh, which with so much conviction, right? So, you know, we could be short a little bit of ball in the book to try to capture that, but the risk to reward from what we've seen in 2020, I mean, 2020 has just been one of those years where I feel like, I, I call it the kurtosis year, because everything that is like a two delta, a five delta and under is just, has been hitting. Like we've been seeing it left and right. And you, you want to talk about just life in general, right? Like God rest his soul. Kobe Bryant died from a helicopter crash, right? You're just thinking about every little thing. You you, you want to talk about the election. I, I'm, I'm a fairly young guy, but I have not seen a year where there's been so much variability. So with everything taking place, it's very difficult for me to say, okay, I'm just going to fixate on the numbers and, you know, statistically, I'm just going to say like, you know, I'm just going to capture the, the, the VRP and, and short fall here because the risk to reward just doesn't really pan out. I'm actually, I'm really curious about these sort of other opportunities you identify. So, of course, okay, they say the statistics line up and say you should probably be short vol because the sort of realized volatility um, going into the election is probably not going to be as high as the hedgers are positioned for. And uh, statistics uh, suggest there's probably some money to be made there and taking advantage of all the fear. What are the other things that you look for? in terms of opportunities that aren't the sort of simple directional bets on one way or another up or down uh, in volatility? Yeah. So uh, we look for um, a little bit of regression in some relative value things. I, I think earnings this season is really, really prominent. I think it's going to, forward guidance is going to really paint the picture for us. And I think reality will set in a little bit because um, I'm anticipating a little bit of a slowdown in, in corporate earnings uh, this cycle. So there are ways to capture that spread uh, between some of the single names in certain sectors, right? So we don't necessarily need to be mega focused on, you know, VIX up. You know, we look to express some of our views in, in some of the uh, sectors with single names and then also the ETFs, right? So for example, if we're looking at a, you know, the the Qs to IWM, you know, maybe we think the Qs uh, are trading relatively rich and IWM is trading relatively cheap from from a vol standpoint, right? Maybe thirty day implied vol, or you know, we we like to focus on uh, the wings. So we'll be looking at how is Kurtosis trading, right? Is the five delta and under puts or five delta and under calls trading relatively cheap or expensive? So I think this earning cycle brings up an opportunity for a lot of dispersion. And I think you'll see disparity in a few different sectors. So I think people could uh, look to focus on that. And I mean, you know, from just eliminating, okay, like vol itself, this election time is very important in relation to sectors, right? Think about how important 
the oil sector is. Think about how important healthcare sector is. Think about how important the energy, like those sectors are heavily reliant on who will be the winner of this election, right? Because it's night and day for the turnout for that. So, you know, I think investors could and should focus on um, some other areas besides, oh yeah, I think, you know, volatility is going to spike. I think if you look at the volatility on individual names and and certain sectors, it could present um, a little bit bit more uh, opportunity there than, oh yeah, I'm just going to play like a calendar spread and, you know, sell January vols and buy December vols or vice versa. I wanted to zoom out a little bit and and sort of move away from the near-term concerns about potential fat tails and, and the upcoming election and talk about volatility trading over the past few years. So one thing that we hear a lot is that central banks have artificially suppressed volatility through their various unconventional monetary policies. But we also hear from various guests, uh, you know, Ben Eifert's a good example of that, or Chris Cole from Artemis. We also hear that Wall Street or traders and the sort of ecosystem around volatility trading has actually, in effect, uh, also had a hand in suppressing volatility as well. I'm just curious to get your take on that. If if you look at vol now, how suppressed would you say it actually is? And what would you attribute that to? Is it central banks or is it the way uh, big vol players are actually uh, dealing in the space at the moment? First of all, shout out to Ben Neifert. <laughs> ben, Ben's such a good dude. I, I love Ben. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so volatility is absolutely suppressed, but we're not seeing the same level of suppression as we were seeing uh, pre the COVID. Um, because a lot of these short vol funds and a lot of the funds that just focus on selling, you know, like a 10 delta put or, you know, a 25 delta put or whatnot, those guys are kind those guys have been kind of blown out. Right. So you're not really seeing the, the level of suppression that we were seeing pre COVID. However, I should say that this is on a relative level because it's still a, a, a very heavy amount of volatility suppression that's going out there. Central banks are absolutely uh, suppressing volatility. And I think the way how global rates are actually set up right now, it is, it's a big problem. I mean, you know, you have to look at it like this. With global rates being so low, if you are an allocator, you are just, who's just fixated on, on generating a return. What can you do in this market, right? Are you going to go buy corporate bonds? where you have to take on the same sort of default risk as you would with an equity? Or are you going to go buy a treasury where you're going to be yielding like 0%, right? There comes a point in time when you're looking at, at, at the, the menu and you're saying to yourself, All right, you know, I might as well just be invested in equity, right? So with global rates being so low, it forces new players who aren't really in the market to now move into this new spectrum, right? And with that, you also have this this interesting dynamic taking place with structured products just blowing up, right? You have, I mean, I was on the exotics desk at BMO, and I can tell you for a fact, you know, January before um, the COVID situation was an amazing month. People were eating up structured products. The appetite for it is huge, right? So you think about 
everybody who is in the investing world now, right? They want a piece of, uh, they want a little bit of everything compiled into one, right? So they want a little bit of healthcare. They want a little bit of tech. They want a little bit of, um, you know, energy and they want it all in one little, one basket, right? Hence the, the growth of ETF products. But what we are seeing is this dynamic is actually taking away from market breadth. So if you were to look at the main components in the SPY and the Qs, right? The components that are in the two are the same thing, right? It's basically the exact same thing, right? So what, what this is telling you is that the market is being driven on no breadth, right? So as much as people want to diversify and they're trying to diversify, their portfolio is predicated on the large name, right? So with the growth of structured products, with the low global rates and the forced rush to, to equities, and then toss in passive investing with the millennial group, they're just like, oh yeah, I, I want I want to be invested in an in an algo that's going to return you know a guaranteed twelve percent a year. Whereas the reality behind that is it's not as easy as that, and you know people are just very open to putting their money into these type of passive products. So you mix that in now with a big transfer of wealth that comes with the actual market buying power, right? So as a millennial myself, I have friends in the business and in different industries who are now becoming seasoned professionals where, you know, they're making a fairly good uh, salary. And these people are now able to put their money, invest in the stock market, right? So the decision-making has now shifted from the boomers to the millennials, right? So the buying power, and, and we're seeing that, right? Because people complain so much about know, the Robin Hooders and you know, or some of the right. market flow that comes from there, right? But it's not only the Robin Hooders, right? It's the millennials that are a little more open to taking risks. Myself and my team, we've, we've went through data on this little phenomenon and, you know, some of the, the market psychology and sentiment of the younger group, right? So with that taking place, right, all those things mixing into one, right, you have this added volatility, right? Where you should and you could definitely have these left tail events take place more frequently than you were seeing, you know, in you know the nineties or the eighties. So you know, oh, you mentioned having been on the um, on the sell side on the uh, desk at BMO, and of course, um, you know, again, talking about our conversation with Ben a few weeks ago. What did you learn from that experience that you taken over to the buy side? And how does that in, uh, sort of like what did that uh, experience teach you in terms of the opportunities that arise due to the uh, positioning of the uh, sell side of the dealers and so forth? How does that help you think about and spot opportunities? I was actually speaking to uh, I was actually at my old university and I was speaking uh, two weeks ago and I was speaking to a younger kid. and. He was telling me that he trades options. So I'm just asking him, you know, some basic questions, you know, okay, how do you express your view? And, you know, what is it that you look for? Right. So this gentleman had no idea what Delta Vega Gamma was, which is okay, right? He's a college student. We go through it. We all learn. But the appetite and the willingness to go and trade derivatives is at the highest it's ever been. Right. Everybody wants a point of leverage. Everybody wants to be invested in something that could generate 
something with a convexity component. Right, so people are very fixated on options trading, even though they have no idea what they're doing. So the growth is 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 tremendous, right? And now you add in the fact that dealers need to carry a matchbook, which means that they really just need to hedge off their risk. And you add that in, and and that leads to excessive dealer gamma hedging, right? And that leads to more emphatic swings in the market. And you know, you asked me. What did I learn at BMO? You know, I, I learned a tremendous amount uh, under those guys. I'm truly grateful to have experienced the uh, or had the opportunity to help manage a book of that size and, and go through the day to day and understand the moving components of all the complexities in a book of that size with those type of products, right? Because you have a million moving pieces. So I think understanding how to manage risk from a large book like that with all the moving pieces, I think really translated well to how we look at risk here at Ambrose. But one thing that really opened my eyes was uh, a situation that took place in, um, I want to say late February or early March, but it was really an eye opener to me that the book moved in a particular way that we didn't anticipate. Right. And although obviously, you know, I understood and knew the intricacies of dealer gamma hedging, right? And obviously on a day-to-day basis, I went through that process, right? When we hedged off our book, you know, at the beginning of the morning or or end of the night, because that was our job. One of the exotic success, the job was just don't lose money for the bank, right? So you're, you're basically there as a, as a protection trader. So I remember the market was tanking and we got the call from the heads up and my boss at the time literally just, I, I sat um I sat one row away from him. I remember him just saying, like, okay, we need to hedge everything. And I'm looking at the positions, I'm looking at like how our Vegas moving, our gamma's moving. And I'm saying to myself, like, oh man, I don't know if this is really the right move. But he he just said he's like, We need to hedge everything. We got the call up, like it does not matter what the price is, we have to hedge it. Right. So what that meant for us is that we now had to go out into the open market and sell SPX futures and basically buy SPX puts. So synthetically, what does that do? Right, that drives the price of the market down, and that drives the price of fix up. During that time, you know, it was an eye opener because us as a large bank, you know, we had to basically come in with a ton of size and do this when the market was already getting hammered. And I thought to myself, this is taking place across the street. And it really sank into me that this is much more severe than people give give it credit. Because obviously I understood the ramifications of this because, you know, I I traded on the buy side before there and, you know, I, I, I understand how market microstructure works. But when you see it in real time and you see how you're moving the market with so much size and there's other guys that are doing the exact same thing and then you have forced liquidation taking place, it, it kind of really just clicks to you and you're like, oh my gosh, like that was literally just us. We just dropped the market or you know, us and you know, two other clients really just moved the market. It, it emphasizes on what we try to do at Amber, right? We are fixated on capturing those left and right tail events. Right. So we believe that with 
excessive volatility suppression, and we will continue to see this, right? The market will get back into a point of complacency, and we will have those short volatility funds come back, and we'll have guys that are basically selling, you know, variants left and right, right? So it's just about waiting for for the uh, for the complacency to set in, right? Because when March of 2020 took place, everybody has that fresh in their mind, right? So everybody's now they want to manage the risk, right? Now they want to focus on 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 hedging off the book, right? But there will come a point in time where the market is just going up and people are going to be like, ah, you know, I don't need to pay for the hedge. I don't need to, why do this? You know, it's taking away 3% yield for me for a year. You know, I don't need this anymore. That's when you will have more of these emphasized moves take place where you see a move like that, or, you know, you have a right tail event or a left tail event. And we believe that the way how we uh, set our positioning, we're going to be able to capture those type of moves because as the market microstructure continues to adapt, we believe that these moves will happen much more frequently than people are giving credence to. So this is something I wanted to ask about, actually, when you were telling the story about how everyone on the street was kind of doing the same thing all at once and hedging their own um, volatility exposure in similar ways. What are your options when you're doing that kind of hedging? Is there an opportunity to do something different to what everyone else is doing? Or by the nature of, of the exposure, you're sort of forced to you know buy or sell spy futures or VIX futures or something like that? How much freed freedom isn't the right word. How much creativity do you have in managing those hedges? Well, you know, you could try to get a little bit cute and creative, but at the end of the day, it's going to lead to one thing, right? If you are long, you need to cut down that delta, right? So at the end of the day, you're going to need to be negative delta. So no matter how you want to flip it, if you want to say, okay, you know, I'm going to try to sell something that I believe is relatively cheaper that carries a heavier beta. Sure. But at the end of the day, whether you're trying to go through the window or go through the front door or the back door, you got to get out the house. All right. So it's literally the the exact same thing. If if you want to express it and jump through the attic, you can do that. But at the end of the day, you're not going to be able to escape the situation that you're in. And that's, and that's basically okay, I'm at a point where I need to minimize risk, right? So I heard a, um, I, th- I think it was actually Chris Cole. Chris Cole said this uh, on a podcast and he was basically saying like, when the market was tanking, we had our, our phones ringing off the hook and you know everybody wanted to, to hedge at that point. But he was basically saying like, look, there's nothing I can do for you at this point. Like you, you, want, you want to try to hedge off your book now when the market is tanked, you know, 13%. 15% down, like the time to hedge was beforehand, right? You should have been calling those guys beforehand. So the, the game of volatility is a psychological game, right? Because people look at this and they say, eh, you know, I don't really need this right now. Why am I going to lose 5% off of my portfolio paying for this? You know, like things are fine, right? But those are the moments where you really need it. Um, because yeah, you may lose 5% in your book paying for volatility, but it's going to offset those losses where you're going to lose 35%, you know, 40%. And, and in some situations, guys, if you were positioned well enough, like we did, you know, we did um, 
a shock test to see where our positioning would be in, in March. And it was very easy to see that with a small allocation, not only would you have recouped your losses on, and based on the allocation that we believe, and I won't go into like, you know, discussing that on, on the podcast, but you would have not only recouped your losses, but you would have made money. So, you know, it obviously contingent on the allocation size and, and whatnot, but there is a situation where this thing is not only served as a protective base, but it could also make money for you. And, you know, even if you were just a, a blind guy that just decided oh, I'm buying volatility pre-February, March, you made money. If you were long volatility, it was very difficult for you not to make money. It's hard to try to express that view and try to get cute and creative about it because at the end of the day, your focus is basically on one thing and that's really just to mitigate risk. I want to go back to the question that I asked uh, right at the beginning, which is why do vol curves slope upwards? And I mean, I understand that that's how it always is, but, you know, it seems to me that if you wanted to ask, like, oh, what's the stock market going to do over the next week or the next month or the next two years, the next five years, um, it's probably going to go up uh, based on I'm not talking about the future, but I mean, historically speaking, that was just the case that over the long term, and this is like a fundamental axiom of investing. There's like over the long term, hold for the long term, stocks usually go up, et cetera. And so if this is one of the fundamental ideas in investing that the short term is noise and the long term is a steady gain, which is what most asset managers sort of assume, why do people pay more for protection over the long term uh, than the short term? Yeah, that's a really good philosophical question. I think it's because we don't have uh, and we can't really project an idea of how detrimental the ramifications will be, right? And it's one of those situations where when the avalanche starts to take place, most likely it's uh, the beginning of what will be a bigger ball, right? So it's like that snowball effect, and it's very hard to try to price that out. You know, if we were in a situation where guys could buy cheap ball on forward projections, I think from a philosophical standpoint, guys would do it. But, you know, I think people who don't really trade volatility didn't know that when the market tanked in February and March, the longer dated stuff on the term structure didn't really move too much, right? If you look at some of the, I mean, if you want to just talk about like an exotic note, um, or let's just say in general, like right, two years out, the vault on that didn't really move as much as people anticipate, right? But the longer dated, the real longer dated vault stuff, like, you know, you're talking about five years, two years, three years, that type of stuff doesn't really get going when vol is, uh, selling like that you know so there is that misconception that people have where you know they think like oh well you know five years five year vol or whatever is probably spiked so you know i'm just gonna sell it well it was that easy i think everybody would just set up business and just do that but um yeah from a philosophical standpoint uh, i could see why uh forward projecting is tough right and i mean you think about all the bright minds in the market right we have so many intelligent guys and Nobody can forward project volatility. There's a big assumption factor, and there's a lot of variance and a ton of variability in, in those type of assumptions and, and that type of modeling. So with all the bright minds that this world has produced, nobody has been able to accurately forecast volatility. Right? You could have maybe a sense, and you know you, you, could, you could nick it one or two times, but Actively forecasting volatility is something that I, I just don't think that humans can do right now. 
Well, Chris, uh, that was a really engaging discussion, and it's always good to dive into the volatility space, especially now um, when we have interesting things going on ahead of the election. And I, I guess the good news is we won't have to wait that long to see how it all shakes out. So just until uh, November or December, I guess. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, Chris. That was great. Thank you, guys. So, Joe, I always enjoy it when we talk about the volatility trading space, and it's good to get a sort of a market practitioner like Chris, who's in the weeds and can really explain what's going on when we see a gamma hedging event in markets. Yeah, there's so many interesting uh, things to think about. I mean, one is, you know, again, thinking, talking to Chris, talking to Ben, thinking about all these like retail traders who have come in to the market either and in multiple ways. I mean, some of course going crazy with call buying. Also, I thought it was interesting, Chris mentioning the rise of like the sort of like passive, like oh, I'm just gonna, you know, buy the same amount of stock every week on an app like Acorn or whatever. How much of the opportunity sort of comes down to like market structure things as opposed to taking some directional view like, oh, I think Biden is going to win and therefore X. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess the big change that we've seen in the market in recent years is that volatility trading has sort of exploded into its own industry. And with it, yeah. that's had had the impact on dealers. And then what the dealers are doing is having an impact on the broader market, but also volatility expectations as well. So it turns into this sort of um, self-fulfilling isn't the right word, but I guess self-fueling cycle of volatility trading so like suppression begets further suppression basically yes and it you know look i still don't feel like i understand why volatility curves slope upward (laughs) it doesn't make any sense to me like the future the the short term is weird and we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow but probably the long term will be kind of boring right i I don't know. I feel like the long term, I I mean, look, I think 2020 has kind of jaded me about what can happen in a single year, let alone over the course of a decade. But any tomorrow could be very weird. We know that. What about 10 years from tomorrow? Well, 10 years from tomorrow, every single advisor we would ever talk to would say, yeah, stocks will probably be higher. Yeah, but you don't know what this is like. like, This is like, but you don't know what happens in the meantime. Who cares? (laughs) And I, I get it. I'm still like on the hunt for like the totally satisfying answer about how the investment industry's view could be stocks generally go up, ignore the short term noise, but also we're going to pay more for long term hedges than we do short term hedges. Hey, look, I think the uh, the moral of this conversation or the big takeaway is that you're going to be selling some very, very cheap volatility exposure 10 years in the future. Everyone should come to you for their long term hedging needs. Yeah, I, I'm uh, I'm putting a call out uh, right now. No, I'm not. But I guess, you know, thinking about it that way, it's like, sure, I can say that, that I'll like uh, would be a seller of long term vol. But do I really want to be on the hook for it? Maybe that's the issue. I just don't want to. Uh, I just don't want to take it on my book. Yeah, I think it, it's going to end up being something like the carrying cost um, over that course of time, isn't it? Yeah. But OK, well. On that note, uh, again, everyone uh, buy vol exposure from Joe. He's offering. 
But in the meantime, this has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guest on Twitter, Chris Sidiel. He's at K-S-I-D-I-I-I. So K-Sid with three I's. Follow our producer, Laura Carlson, at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcast. Thanks for listening.